This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Green and Gold History. This episode of Green and Gold History is presented by New Era. New Era Cap is proud to be the official cap of your Oakland athletics. Next time you visit the Coliseum, be sure to drop by the New Era Cap stand and pick up your A's New Era Authentic Collection Cap. Remember, you can always visit us at neweracap.com to shop our latest selection, including our limited edition and exclusive drops. New Era Cap, the official on-field cap of Major League Baseball. Welcome to Episode 7, Memories with Voos, as we continue our year-long conversation with Steve Vucinich, his longtime equipment manager who's been with the organization since 1968 and retiring after 54 years with the green and gold. Vuce, when we last left it, we were wrapping up back-to-back-to-back world championships for the athletics, winning finally against the Dodgers to complete that trifecta of world championships. And then you head into the winter, and I can remember as a kid sitting on my couch watching the Blue Bonnet Bowl, of all things, on New Year's Eve, and Jim Lampley, who was a sideline reporter for ABC Sports at the time, broke the news that Catfish Hunter was a New York Yankee as free agency had kind of hit full steam ahead. Can we backpedal a little bit on how all that came about with Catfish and how that opportunity presented itself and certainly changed baseball in many ways? Well, as we said before, Charlie Finley had signed Catfish to a two-year, $200,000 contract avoiding arbitration. Catfish's stipulation was that half of that money, 50000 was going to be put into like a trust or a, a fund. And what Charlie found out is he couldn't deduct the taxes on that. So we was really only arguing over the income taxes on $50,000. Well, Charlie uh, didn't like Catfish uh, demanding that. So he would call Catfish before every start. And maybe it, Catfish uses it as a boost because he went on to be a Cy Young winner that year. So it breaks during the World Series that Catfish is going to try to be a free agent because Charlie has screwed up the contract and not paid him his full money. So they go into the winter, they go to kind of an arbitration thing, and it's ruled in Catfish's favor, so he's a free agent. In somewhere in Charlotte, North Carolina, Don Cherry, and I think he had some advice from Jerry Capstein, the super agent at the time, and all these teams paraded in with uh, offers for Catfish. And Catfish had just been in L.A. for the World Series, did not like the smog, didn't want to come back to California, although he was amenable to San Diego because his good friend John McNamara and Bill Postel was a pitching coach there. Uh, so he thought about that, but he got all these offers, and he finally decided on the Yankees. I don't know if the Yankees were even a top offer, but he liked the fact of going to New York. And the signing was done on December 31st, so he'd get a bonus at that point, and he could spread out the contract. And that's really why the date was New Year's Eve. How sad was that for the A's organization that it finally happened that one of their most uh, iconic players and certainly a great pitcher was gone and, and of all places, going to New York? Um, it was kind of sad. It was kind of uh, disheartening because I think as soon as we realized he was a free agent, he wasn't coming back, Charlie would have to blow him away. And Charlie wasn't one that was going to spend that much money. So he's going to the Yankees, and the Yankees are an up-and-coming team. 
And you can see that uh, George Steinbrenner is the owner, and he's going to spend whatever it takes to get him. And Catfish was really the first free agent. And so you go to 1975, and as you look at the season, here are the A's looking to go to the postseason again. They started in 71. They went back-to-back-to-back, 72, 73, 74. And lo and behold, they get to the postseason again in 75. How do you look back on the way the A's were able to continue to play well, be effective, despite all the things around them that always seemed to, to be a bit of a drag on the franchise, and yet they found a way to get back to October baseball? Well, again, as I said before, that the guys win in spite of Charlie Finley, and sometimes they thought the only way to get a race was to get a postseason share. So anyway, we uh, tried to replace Catfish with some various trades. We traded for uh, Stan Bonson from the White Sox, uh, Dick Bosman and Jim Perry from Cleveland, uh, giving up uh, Blue Moon Odom, and uh, trying to get another right-hander in there. But we uh, we uh, survived, went into the playoffs, and we go to Boston, and we're opening the first two games there, and everybody thought it was the death of the A's because we were starting two left-handers, and Bida Blue and Ken Holtzman. Well, we lost those two games, came back to Oakland, lost the third game, and Boston was on its way to the World Series. And you can kind of feel like, well, maybe that's the end of the dynasty we had. And if we had had Catfish that year, we might have won it again. But uh, we didn't, and we had to move on, and then... Then we go to uh, Alvin Dark, criticizes Charlie Finley at some church speech that he's given in Fremont or Hayward, and Charlie ends up firing Alvin. And uh, we wait a while, and he makes a trade with, a, with uh, the White Sox, or talks to the White Sox, and they're making a change. And so Chuck Tanner, who Charlie got to know in Chicago when he was with the White Sox, comes on as our manager for the 76 season. For those that remember being around Chuck Tanner, the ultimate optimist, the guy that always was smiling, always loved to be in uniform, always tried to keep everybody in a positive frame of mind. And the team ran like crazy for Chuck Tanner. I think still has the record for most stolen bases in a season. But it certainly had to be different. Roster was different. The names coming and going, and some of the names are on the A's roster, had to be a bit unique. What did you see from the way the, the tide was turning, if you will, for this franchise? Well, everybody was expecting free agency to uh, develop past the 76 season, which it eventually did. But Charlie uh, thought he wasn't going to be able to sign Reggie Jackson to a long-term contract. So he trades Reggie and Ken Holtzman to Baltimore for Mike Torres and uh, up-and-coming pitcher Paul Mitchell. And that was supposed to supplant our team going into the 76 season. But Chuck Tanner being the all optimist that you said, he had Reggie so pumped up. Reggie might have hit 60 home runs that year. Who knows? But uh, we start off and we were stealing bases left and right. I remember Leonard Coppett did a big thing about Charlie, Chuck Tanner was a descendant of somebody who was a defendant, descendant of somebody else all the way back to the 1920s when stolen bases really took off. And uh, we had Don Baylor. Um, he stole a lot of bases, Campaneras, and we had Billy North. And we were running wild. Claude L. Washington was there. So the 76 season, we never really got going. We made a run towards the end at Kansas City. We had a big game here uh, where there was a big fight. They hit Don Baylor. He charged the mound. Dennis Leonard had to run in towards the A's dugout, which was the wrong thing to do to avoid an oncoming Don Baylor from first base. And uh, we got to within a couple games. But I think if the season ended another week later, we would have won that division. Uh, so at the end of the season, Charlie makes a very unique trade. He trades... Chuck Tanner to Pittsburgh, where he is from and where they wanted him, and we get a catcher named Manny Sanguin plus $100,000. So it was another really odd and funny offseason. Those, those that follow the Ace franchise going back to the Connie Mack days know that 
there were times when Connie Mack was struggling to pay the bills and trying to keep things moving and keep the, the turnstiles and just keep the, the gates open, if you will. You know, they would they had that great run in the early 10s, and then they sells off a bunch of players to make another run in the late 20s and into the early 30s, sells players again. And Charlie tried to do that with uh, with the trades of, you know, Vita Blue and Joe Rudy and Raleigh Fingers. And there's, there's even a picture still somewhere of Raleigh Fingers for a moment wearing a Boston Red Sox uniform, which never happened. But this was an interesting time where Charlie thought maybe he was right. Look, I need to sell these players. I need to keep things moving. And he felt like that was the way to go. What was happening during those two weeks of those guys kind of in limbo for the club? Well, the odd thing was the Red Sox were in town on a trading deadline. So uh, we hear that it's going to happen. Charlie sold Raleigh and Joe Rudy to the Red Sox. I've got a million and a half for Vita Blue to go to the Yankees. Odd thing is, the Yankees wouldn't take Vita unless he had a long-term contract, so Charlie signed him to a three-year deal before that. It looked like, hey, maybe Charlie's going to keep this club together and realize that Vita's younger and he should stay with us. But no, it was just to make some money. I don't believe, Charlie Finley said, I was just going to get this money so I could buy free agent in the year. I don't believe that. I think he was just going to pocket all the money. So Rudy and, and, and Fingers come over to the visiting clubhouse. They suit up and go on the field. And fortunately, Daryl Johnson decided not to play him that day. And in comes the thing that uh, Raleigh's wife called me as Raleigh was on the way to the ballpark, had no other way to reach him, and said, hey, just got a telegram from the commissioner, said to hold off on a, on a deal. Don't go into the red, dress with the Red Sox today. So I had to catch Raleigh at the door. He came in anyway, and they sat around and talked. And, and then Charlie Finley said, uh, uh, we've got to uh, go on with this. And the commissioner said, give me a day or so. And the commissioner ruled against the sale of those three guys. Well, Charlie was so upset he was going to sue the commissioner, but he decided not to play him. In those uh, 10, 12 days at that point, we only had 22 players. We couldn't replace them. So uh, we actually played pretty well in those times, and there was a big threat of a strike. The A's were not going to take the field on that Sunday, which is some 10 days after that trade. Uh, and they weren't going to go on the field, and all this national media came on. I mean, we didn't have ESPN then. We didn't have the Internet. I mean, even... Hale Halebrun from the CBS Sports came out, and they were hanging outside the clubhouse. Charlie finally relented and said, okay, we can play those guys, we're keeping them. And Joe Rudy was the first one out of the clubhouse, first one on the field. I'll never forget what a great standing ovation. It's like, hey, the A's are back. And now we took off on a lower run and tried to catch the Royals. Unfortunately, couldn't. I like the best 0 for 4 that Joe Rudy ever had in his career because he got the chance to play. Like you mentioned, they were they were 7-5 and five while they were gone for 12 days. And I get was was Sal the guy that kind of led putting this potential one day strike together? What was the support inside the clubhouse like? Well, I don't know if it had been a one day strike. It might have gone on for a few days, but uh, Sal was a leader of that team. He wasn't the player rep, but he was a leader, and he was just trying to make sense of it all. Why penalize the team? Why penalize the fans? Only going with twenty two players. It looks like this deal's not going through. It's ten, twelve days past it. Let's get back to twenty five players. Let Vida and Raleigh and Joe participate again as an Oakland Athletic. You mentioned the the trade of a manager for a player when Chuck Tanner went to the Pirates for Manny Sanguian. There's a stretch there where it's the comings and goings of managers Jack McKean and Bobby Winkles uh, back and forth for a two-year period. This is a team that just recently went to the postseason five consecutive years and won the World Series in three straight years. Had not happened since the 50s with the Yankees. What was the sense of where this franchise was heading with what Charlie was doing with the club? Well, after that 77 season, he brings for the 77 season, he brings in Jack McKeon, who he'd gotten to know because Jack was an advanced scout for us in the 75 playoffs. And so he brings in Jack, 
and we get off to just a so-so start. But he also brought in some old guys, too. He brought in Dick Allen. He brought in Earl Williams. We had Manny Sanguian. So uh, age was against us right there, and he tried to fill some spots with some minor leaguers like Rodney Scott, who had a little time at Kansas City and Montreal. Uh, but anyway, they came in, and we didn't play that well. And so because of a bad start some six, eight weeks in, uh, Charlie decides to bring in Bobby Winkles, who he got to know when he was managing the Angels a little bit and at ASU Baseball when he had drafted Bando and, and uh, Reggie. And so uh, he knew him, so Winks comes in, and then we really start playing to our potential, which wasn't very good, and we didn't finish very well. Now, at the end of the 77, Charlie has threatened to sell the club and made all the advances to do that, uh, just couldn't get the deal completed. And we start the 78 season. We get off to a tremendous start. I remember other teams, Rick Burleson with the Angels in particular, who said these guys are scared to death. That's why they're playing over their heads and they're beating us. So they had a, a veteran club with Fred Lynn and Don Baylor and Joe Rudy over there with the Angels. But uh, we beat them and got off to a good start. But Winkles just couldn't take the interference from Charlie Finley. So he actually quit. And Jack McKeon, who was then on the coaching staff, becomes a manager again. You mentioned the, the potential sale was to Marvin Davis, an, an oil billionaire from uh, the Denver area. How close did that come? Was there a point where you've talked in the past about getting you know, in the, in the truck and heading toward Oakland, but not sure if that's the direct path you're going to take? Was it anything remotely like that when all this was taking place? It was so close. It was back and forth every year. In fact, we had met Marvin Davis at his, in Palm Springs where he had a, uh, a winter home. And he came out to watch us play the Angels, and he said, any day now, any day now. So we thought that it would go through, and that was probably mid-March. But it didn't go through, and uh started a 78 season. Charlie Finley came to Anaheim. We opened the season there, and he said, hey, guys, we're going to go home to Oakland from here, but don't rent places because the second homestand will probably be playing in Denver. And that would have been unprecedented, a move like that. I know the pilots moved to Milwaukee, became the Brewers a couple of weeks before the season started, but this would have been an in-season transaction and moved to Denver, which wouldn't have been very popular with anybody, but uh, it didn't go through, and we were in Oakland again for the 78 season and actually played pretty well. Boos, part of the 78 campaign, and we just had this recently here at the Coliseum, Pride Night has been turned into Glenn Burke Pride Night, the Oakland native who played for the Los Angeles Dodgers, actually started in the outfield in the World Series against the Athletics, and he's traded to the A's organization in 1978, midway through that season. Do you have a recollection of Glenn, the, of Glenn the player, Glenn interacting with his teammates, and what what it was like for Glenn to be back home with the athletics? I think he was happy about it. I had known Glenn since he was 11, 12 years old. We'd played against each other in Little League and, and Pony League and Babe Ruth. And I watched Glenn in high school. He was one of the great athletes. He was the first player to ever take advantage of the new NC2A role where he could be professional in one sport, which was baseball. And then he went to the University of Nevada, Reno, and played for Jim Padgett up there in basketball. He played on an undefeated state championship team in Berkeley and just a great, great athlete. And he was always the life of the party, always chirping, very loud guy. And he came over and he hadn't changed at all. And uh, we'd sit and talk about him, my, my days with the 49er Dairy and his days with a company named Porterhouse who, who sponsored our respective teams. But uh, he was a happy-go-lucky guy. Um, and uh, he was happy to be back in Oakland playing here. The 79 season... It was about as low as it could get in Oakland. 54 wins, 108 losses. Jim Marshall's the manager of the team. I mean, how low was that? And before we wind down this episode as we get to the 1980 campaign and, and when Billy Martin comes to town, but what was 79 like? 
it was a brutal year. Um, Jim Marshall had managed AAA, so he knew our most of our players from the year before. But uh, Charlie Finley never even saw us play. He made zero trips to Oakland, and in two series we played in Chicago, he didn't even come out. He was intent on trying to sell the club. He didn't want to be associated with a club that was going to lose over 100 games. And uh, he was working behind the scenes to uh, try to sell the club. And again, the rumor was we were going to go to Denver and go to Mr. Davis. But it never happened, uh, but it was a real bad season. We drew 310,000 the entire year. Nowadays we do that, or used to do that in home stands. And uh, our biggest crowd was a 17,000 half-price Monday night against the powerful Boston Red Sox. So it was a real sad year. We had that one game in April when it was cold and freezing and raining, and it was the first game we'd ever televised locally on TV here other than postseason, and we had some less than 700 fans. So it was a year to uh, remember and also a year to forget. And look at as the A's move into the next decade, into 1980 and beyond, and suddenly it's the kid that played for the Oakland Oaks, the kid from Berkeley, Billy Martin comes, he leaves the Yankees in between his third or fourth or second and third firings with George Steinbrenner with the Yankees. But when Billy Martin comes back to his hometown to manage his hometown team, what did that signify, you think, to the community? What did it signify to you seeing Billy come back and maybe what he could do to help turn the ship around for the A's? Well, uh, Carl Finley, who was kind of a one-man show, was Charlie Finley's cousin, kind of ran the front office here. And he said, hey, you need a manager. Billy Martin's available. You probably don't have to pay him that much because he's still under contract to the Yankees. Why don't you bring him out? Maybe instill some local interest. Maybe they'll play well. And maybe some somebody will be interested in buying the club. And that's exactly what happened. Billy came in, turned his franchise around, taught the guys how to win. Uh, stood up for the players, always had the players back, whether it was against the umpires, against Charlie, or against Major League Baseball. And we started to win, and, and all of a sudden the interest peaked, and, and uh, the Haas family were interested in buying it, and they did, and uh, we were successful after that. That's where I want to end this episode, uh, when the Haas family steps in, and they take over the club, and they believe in wanting to be a steward to the organization, steward to the community. Just as we wrap up this conversation as you look back on it now, how significant was that, that local ownership came in? And you talk about sometimes where teams fire managers and they get just the opposite of the person to take over as manager. How big of a change was it to go from Charlie Finley to the Haas family to take over this organization? Well, we were all elated. That meant baseball was going to stay in Oakland after the threat of the three winners before of moving it to Denver or moving wherever. And so we were elated that we were going to have local ownership, uh, uh, it was announced in August of 1980 and said they wanted to keep Billy Martin on. Uh, those of us that worked for the franchise for all those years were, it was like a breath of fresh air. Hey, we're turning the corner. We're going up instead of down. We're not leveling out. And uh, the Haas family knew they had to come in and spend money, rebuild the front office, rebuild the franchise, and did a great job. What a great way to end Episode 7 uh, as we look back at the end of the 70s, the beginning of the 80s, and we'll hit into... The strike of 81, Billy Ball full steam ahead, and what lies ahead for the athletics in our next episode with Steve Vucinich with our Memories with Vuce. Hope you've enjoyed this episode seven here on AceCast. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.